Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. In honor of the formerly ambitious, experimental nonfiction films that are showcased at Art of the Real, this week's podcast is going to be a little different than usual. Called from galleries and festivals from around the globe, the films included in Art of the Real can seem daunting. Most are durational experiences that lyrically express emotional truths and thought-provoking facts about the world around us. Sometimes it's the bitterness of capitalism. Other times, it's the unpleasant state of our environment, and sometimes it's both. These are expository films that aren't advocacy-based or concerned with spoon-feeding a viewer information. I spoke with Art of the Real co-programmer Rachel Riggs about its aims. Avoiding narrativization, which could happen in a narrative film or in a documentary film, I think is one of the, one of the main things, and coming out more like an essay than a story, not to like automatically related to text, but thinking about it as more of kind of an ensemble that comes together to produce something more than kind of a point A to point B. And, you know, we're looking for like as many kinds of experimentation with that idea um, as we can find. Maybe putting forth this this kind of work that is not formulaic and merging between that something, something that you can sit and get, get something out of, but then find these intimate moments in and these funny moments in and I don't know how to divorce the idea of like something being artful and something being boring or like you don't want to come see it. No, it's not. There's, there's not a whole lot in this, although we have shown films that I would say are probably guilty pleasures. Um, there aren't <laughs> there aren't a whole like a lot of what you would call guilty pleasures, but there's a whole lot of films that are pleasurable. It is ironic to me that we are living through a big documentary boom. And, you know, to me, making of a murderer is one of the most boring things uh, you can possibly imagine. It's 10 hours long. I literally fell asleep while watching it. And people are rabid for stuff like that. Obviously, it has murder in the title. People love crime stories. Yeah, the sort of art crowd who who is like not sure about coming to things like this because they're movies and that's like not art. So you, so you have like the pretension on one side mm-hmm. and then you have this other kind of pretension or this other kind of like avoid, you know, anti-intellectual avoidance on the other. And so like we're like kind of in between. And um, I don't know, it's tough. Brothers of the Night the first film we'll take a closer look at, adopts a novel approach to the world's oldest profession. Patrick Chiha's hybrid film surveys the lives of male Bulgarian gay-for-pay prostitutes living in Vienna. Although it's a documentary, it looks like Fassbender's Carell, complete with anachronistic sailor suits and candy-colored lights. When I came here, it was very difficult, you understand. In Bulgaria, I heard that you can make good money with gay guys here. I thought gay guys were transvestites with long hair and tits and stuff like that. And gay guys pay so well, so why not? I'll give it a go, no problem. And what do I see the first time I go to Rudiger? Just old guys, just oldies, no transvestites. As the young, strapping men move through this nighttime world, they talk about their lives and their clients' proclivities in casual chats with each other. At other times, she has stages scenarios that border on comedy sketches. Sometimes, these moments of creative nonfiction are more impressionistic, such as when one man goes to get a haircut at a salon from a paisan of ambiguous gender identity, which suddenly turns into a lap dance. Stop.
The man getting the lap dance goes between resistance and pleasure, slapping his compatriot's hand away from his crotch. But he always stays in the barber's chair. Like the hand jobs he receives for 30 or 40 euros a pop, baseline biological gratification sometimes defeats sexuality, or our understanding of it. Here's Michael Koreski, Director of Editorial and Creative Strategy at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Yeah, there's, there's actually a really interesting tiny little moment where uh, two of the men are talking about the experience they've had, and one of them is talking about the first time he ever did it with an older man and how he mm-hmm. found it really disgusting and really terrible, but, you know, hey, it's money, whatever. And as he's telling the story, he starts to touch his friend and kind of mime mm-hmm. things. He's like, like for instance, he, you know, he put his hand in my chest and he's feeling me, and the friend knocks his hand away and says, stop touching me there, I'm going to come. <laughs> and it's just kind of like yeah. funny off- and he says it twice is it kind yeah, of a yeah. funny offhanded thing yeah. um, it, it says I know it's a joke and it's about the intimacy they feel with each other but also like they're just operating in like this totally other realm of of um, physical intimacy and sensuality and touch where they're able to share like the tiniest thing that's on their mind with each other yeah like it, it, it kind of just defies any definition of gayness i just think it's really interesting that this film chose to portray these people's lives this way because what it does is it proves how circumscribed documentary ideas are about authenticity and i think that the director was doing that very overtly like Mm -hmm. he has also said in interviews he's like well if i had directed this with a realist aesthetic you know a lot of shaky cam (laughs) And a lot of, um, I don't know, the camera just kind of like weaving and bobbing its way through these crowded bar spaces or cafe spaces. He's like, that doesn't mean this is more real. Just because I'm lighting things and arranging things in a particular way doesn't mean that what you're seeing isn't authentic. Right. There is nothing that draws more attention to the fact that you're watching a film than a shaky cam, right? right. Like it's it's announcing that this is not vision. This is a camera that's bouncing around. Yeah. When this film starts, you get the swooning Mahler symphony on the soundtrack and you realize you're in some other realm. Like this is, you, you may know you're about to watch a documentary, but it's telling you something about documentary, right? It's just announcing itself right off the bat. Mm-hmm. This is a different way of looking at reality. It doesn't mean it's any less real that it's hyper real, right? right. And I, I don't know. I feel like even the scenes where the camera just sort of is trained on them when they talk about the sexual, their sexual exploits, mm-hmm. the things that they've been asked to do by these often older men, yeah. always older men. Mm-hmm. There's something about the way that they, that the that the young men hold the camera when they tell these stories that just. It, it, it takes pity out of it completely. You never, ever pity them, even right. if you are angry at the system that allows this to happen. These are people with lives, and they say, I'm going to do these things, sometimes truly disgusting things. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to do these things because I need the money, and my baby needs the money, and my wife needs the money. That's heartrending. But the film is never asking for your pity. No. And I think that's pretty interesting. It's never adding something that isn't there to the equation. Right. It's and and the fact that again it's a sensual experience, it's mm-hmm. it's by definition a sensual erotic film. But it seems like it's about erotics and sensuality rather than exploiting these these boys for their 
eroticism. Right. They don't get undressed for the camera. The film is not about looking at them. The film is actually about giving them a lot of strength and decency and talking about the actual position that they're put in socially. And I'm just kind of amazed by that. And, and it gives them voice. It's clearly a film about people put into certain positions because of uh, capital. And there's even like a really funny moment where anti-capital is scrawled as graffiti in the back of one of these tableau, which I thought was um, showed that the film had a sense of humor about itself as well. You get a sense of these men or these boys, they're 18 or 19 years old, being thrust into a situation that they don't quite understand. At the same time, they are able to take control of their own lives. And I think the movie is about that control. Well, but they're also they're also sometimes not in control too, which I think is the film depicts in an interesting way. And I think the other interesting thing is that they really know that they're beautiful. It's kind of rare to see straight men sort of relishing the fact that they're beautiful. And like there are so many scenes where they're taking photos of themselves, of each other. They're showing photos of, uh, to paraphrase Alien in Spring Breakers, their shit. There's no shame about what they, they, they have no shame, but in a way that's not like gross. I th- oh, I think that there's, there's such an interesting um, lineage of that in photography, right? Where people like Bruce Weber, James Bidgood, where the subjects are often these beautiful young straight men. And what does that mean in terms of the gaze of the gay male photographer? And how mm-hmm. are they being objectified or not objectified? And how much are they taking control of their own image? I mean, this is obviously a question that's been asked of women under the male gaze, the photographer, for a long time. But there is a very specific kind of power dynamic that comes with gay men photographing uh, straight men. Um, And yes, it must be said that these are self-proclaimed gay for pay only Mm -hmm. men for the most part. And they're often showing pictures of their wives and their babies Mm -hmm. uh, back in Bulgaria. And... Again, like none of this ever feels like it's there to make you weep. No. It's there to make you realize that this is the political climate and the political system that we live in. This is very matter of fact. And the ultra stylization of those fantasy sequences, for me, just gives them a certain amount of aesthetic dignity, I guess, for lack of a better term. Definitely. Could you talk about how it was executed? Um, Well, all I know is that the director who has made fiction films Patrick Sheeha mm-hmm. um, who's made a lot of fiction films or a handful of them um, in France and he was researching another film by going into these bars down by the docks mm-hmm. <laughs> researching a film and um, <laughs> he found these men and he thought well this is the subject I have to actually just follow them so he just kind of lived with them nocturnally because mm-hmm. the movie takes place completely at night and you just really get a sense of, for lack of a better term, like really like embedded filmmaking. Yeah. There's a, an amazing degree of intimacy that the camera has, but also that they have with each other. Yeah. And I think that was also one of the great surprises of the film is that for all their talk about how they are straight men and they do this only for money, the camaraderie and intimacy that they have achieved with each other is actually very moving and very beautiful. There are scenes where they're just like lounging on each other, lying down, holding each other, talking to each other, stroking each other. And it's really lovely, actually. It made me want to see more about these men. Like, I didn't feel like just because I got this privileged, stylized view of them that, like, this was their li- This was These were their lives, and that was it. Like, I actually, I want to know what happens if they do actually 
go back to their families? How, are they ever going to be able to realize any of the dreams that they talk about in the film? I mean, you become pretty attached to them. Yeah, because the other thing I think is interesting about the film is that it shows the moment that we're in in terms of like gay culture at large, where it's like it's accepted, it's out in the open, and yet still so much of it is located in, as you say, the docks, in these clubs. And again, it's not like there are any gay prostitutes there. It's these straight men who have been imported. And so it's a weird... I don't know, maybe you could say it better, but like the progress that it's not, it's, but it's not entirely progress, you know? Oh yeah, that's the ongoing conversation about right. gay culture, right? Our post-gay culture. Um, I mean, things are different from country to country and obviously, um, but in Europe, I, I think that there's a sense of there being just like a general liberation, but I mean, the the story of liberation is always incredibly relative. So right. yes, these things still happen in shadowy out of the way, tucked away places. Robinson DeVore, perhaps best known for Zoo, his notorious exploration of human sexuality, shares his views on sex and death in his latest, Pow Wow. Shooting in and around a golf course in the Coachella Valley, formerly the land of Paiute Indians, DeVore explores the environmental and cultural contours of the area. There's a repeated shot of the resort from above, which shows the endless highway that divides the manufactured, controlled greenness of the course and suburbs with the shrubs of the desert. Along with recalling surrealist landscape photography, this becomes a symbol of the divide between European and Native American life. The songs were extremely important to the runners because they were particular, because they were trail guides, and in addition to water and, and shelter, they also indicated where you could find edible grasses. And it's very important to remember that people ate grasses until uh, European uh, 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 flora you know, ex exterminated them. But in the deserts, that, that spread, that introduction came very, very late. So the people were still able to eat grasses and get nourishment from that. And that's part of what is, is contained in the song, and why the songs had to be memorized carefully, and they had to be, the, the, the trails had to be run several times. You had to understand them and where to go with them. So it's a highly practical way to survive and a very efficient way to get information across. And it's very, it's, it's totally uh, opposite of our cultural understanding, which is one of the challenges we had, was trying to merge the history with the cultural traditions of which we were not a part. There are many glimpses of the white culture that now dominates the area, such as the resort's infamous powwow party, where its drunken, elderly members roam around the grounds in headdresses, cowboy hats, or nothing at all. Now I've been going to this place for eight weeks, but every week you can't get rid of these with a stick. You know, because I'm, I'm loving this stuff. Now I'm getting good at it. One woman goes, hey, when you get done with your, would you mind licking my pussy on the floor? And I go, shit, no, get in line. The next one says, hey, would you give me the ass when you're done with there? I said, just get in line. I am, I am a Native American. I was born in well, yeah, the United States of Native Americans. Right, right behind them, right? Ambulance chasers. They go, you know what? You got fucking insurance companies screw people around all the time. They'll fuck you. And I go, and if it wasn't for me taking care of you and getting you what you deserve, you get screwed around. I'm actually doing you a blessing. I, what I do is a good thing. I, and I mean over and over and over. Yeah, okay. 
guy's offered $15,000. We had to get $500,000 for him. And, uh, but he has no money. So he's thrown out of his house. He goes, I need uh, 50 grand. I'll just take it. I said, no, I got a guy to loan you money and then you'll wait until he sells the case. He charges some pretty good interest because there's no, there's no collateral. You know, it, if, you, if you lose the case, they lose the money. But God damn it, you know what? Your case is worth a lot of money and it, it stays you in the game. By contrast, there's only one true representative of the natives, a man who lives on a reservation. The rest are just white people regurgitating the myths and legends they've heard from others, including that of Willie Boy, a young Paiute who eloped with his cousin and evaded the police in the desert. He was immortalized in the 1969 film Tell Them Willie Boy Is Here. It looks all right. We take it at a gallop right into the wash, and the horses will go like hell because they want the water. Johnny, you lay back until we get there. Yes, Mr. Coe. Maybe Willie's in that wash. That's part of the game, Judge. If he is, we got him. If he ain't, we got water. However, the man at the reservation has a tangible connection to the film and a unique interpretation of it. It's not uh, really any different than today as far as uh, the, the cultural side of it, you know, how it seems that society, they don't know, you know, a particular group of individuals, whether it be Native Americans or, or Asians or, you know, whatever, just kind of uh, the fear of the unknown, it seems like to me, uh, you know, Willie Boy, uh, didn't seem, you know, he, he seemed like he was a renegade. They tried to portray it that way, but I mean, that was just life, you know, cattle rustling and, and things of that nature and not wanting to be uh, controlled by, you know, an outside entity that was, is foreign, you know, telling you that what you were brought up to believe and what you were brought up to, to know wasn't the right thing. It was, you know, uh, by religious persecution, by the law, by whomever, you know, I think, and, and it, it doesn't, it's not any different now, nowadays, you know, it's just in a little bit different form. Powell also draws comparisons between the real and fake Willie Boy's flight with that of an unnamed teenager who got into a shootout with the cops. Rather than a linear series of comparisons and contrasts between Willie Boy and the teen, or West versus West, DeVore's film seems to work in a circular fashion, overlaying themes, legends, and glimpses of real people spiraling outward. Here's Genevieve Yu, critic and assistant professor at the New School's Eugene Lang College. There's a feeling of, I thought of it as the California Gothic. You know, there is a kind of tacky displays of wealth. At the same time, there's something quite uncanny and dark and sinister lurking right underneath that surface. And what I think the film is, is really great at doing is evoking these multiple layers of, of different kinds of life within, within a desert mm -hmm. um, that is not just about um, these country club people who are careening around in their golf carts, but also a Native American presence that is not really acknowledged by the former. Or if it is, it's like in a super weird, appropriative, 
completely misunderstood like or it's like well this indian guy told me one time i think this story and i think maybe like that's what they believe i'm not really sure though it's like a really (laughs) it's kind of like the classic benevolent liberal reaction there's something about the wealthy white people that they it's like they have to keep inventing their life there yeah and you know there's these really striking aerial shots right of the 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 golf course or the subdivision literally walled off from the desert Mm -hmm. and this kind of invented landscape where you have to bring in water you tap into these deep reservoirs and then it just gets expressed in such a eccentric way that there's some woman in bondage who's like wiping down a bedazzled helicopter or you know there's a competing golf cart dealers yeah this is like the dirty secret of you know the american frontier which is that invention actually means a lot of the time appropriation right and it's it's not coming out of nowhere but it's it's just grabbing you know whatever you feel like right if whatever you want Mm -hmm. not necessarily what you need (laughs) exactly yeah yeah I do want to say I love the portraits in the film. Oh, yeah. That there's this quality of like tableau vivant where people would just be standing there as if they didn't know that there was a a motion picture camera rolling. Um, Like they were standing still for a still portrait. Deeply unsettling and also really powerful. For better or for worse, these people live here and they've claimed it. They've darkened and dispirited (laughs) it and life will keep going, going on in that way. What do you make of like the Willy Boy stuff? So there's the legend of Willy Boy, mm-hmm. there's the film of Willy Boy, and then there's this teenager who shot somebody in the back with this giant gun on a whim and then is pursued through the desert like Willy Boy was. Again, it's not like these are these are clearly defined things that are pitted against each other. Thank you for pointing that out. I didn't thought of it that way. I mean, these seem to me fantasies of escape Mm -hmm. and given the context of this kind of utopian seeming place that people could escape i mean white people could anyway los angeles or palm springs and and move into this either even deeper part of the desert that there's this tension between being able to escape and falling back into some the same kind of trap from which you were running or the other problem would be being able to escape and then having no meaning left. Yeah. That you're you're so far out there that you've lost track of where you've come from and, and you're no longer known. China's economic boom and the impact on its population has been well documented by directors such as Wang Bing in Bitter Money and Zha Zhengke in semi-fictionalized films like Still Life, 24 City, Unknown Pleasures, and I Wish I Knew. Shang Zhu's Another Year takes an overtly structuralist approach. Thirteen meals over 14 months inside the tiny home of a migrant worker's family, each in real time. Often films that are described by terms, you know, like rigorous or, you know, or structural, these are often used to code how the editor, writer, or programmer really feels, which is that, like, you know, they're kind of boring. Um, <laughs> I think this is a case where it's it is really rigorous in terms of you know how long the director spent with the family, how consistent she had to be, just the kind of scope of the project. 
and the decision to, you know, to, to shoot it in this way and these 13 long takes. And then, you know, the experience of it is rigorous. It's, you know, three, three and change hour film. But watching it for me uh, was quite a different experience. I felt myself kind of switching between a sense of intimacy and claustrophobia. And I felt more attuned by the end and it sort of attentive to the family and their conversations or their pat- their patterns of conversations and their relations than like maybe I do often mm-hmm. to my own. I think the kind of combination of focus and range and how much we're able to kind of pull from this scene of this migrant working family mostly around the dinner table about sort of contemporary China in terms of food, work, family relations, the school system, aging, uh, you know, kind of all of these things. And we're kind of allowed to sit with that um, while watching, while watching kind of this all this, these, these dinners unravel. You know, yes, the three hour running time, knowing that at the outset was daunting. But then when I watched it, I was just pulled into it. It was as riveting as a Cassavetes film. It's at once so focused and, and also because of the single long take structure it allows things to unfold in such a slow way to have so little happening camera wise or, you know, to be so humble in a certain way and to be able to get this. I don't even think there's any attempt to get a performance. It's just people being in their situation and comfortable with the, this camera person. But what we're seeing over the course of this year is this you know, and it feels as if you were increasingly claustrophobic and oppressive, the space of the, well, where they're having dinner, but it's a single room um, home that they live in. So they're, they're sleeping there, they're, they're living there, they're eating there, and they're just kind of gnawing away at each other. And it's one of the most intense family dramas I've ever seen, documentary or fiction. They are vicious to each other. It was incredibly painful to watch especially the mother tearing at her eldest daughter the way she lays into her mother-in-law who then has a stroke and then she has to go take care of her and becomes she's just carrying this bitterness that she's had for years and years Um, the way she privileges her little son over her little daughter is also painful to watch and there's a way in which the, the structure allows that experience of discomfort and the drama of it to just accumulate slowly, slowly. So you have these motifs that recur, like old chopsticks that taste funny, or the green beer bottles that the father is drinking, and the TV, of course, this omnipresent TV that's always on and just makes the, the space feel even more closed in. Their attention is very different, each individual. And sometimes you wonder, why is this TV even on? Because no one is actually watching it. I mean, there's one glimmer of hope. I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but there, <laughs> there is a moment in which the TV gets turned off. And it's, it's like the greatest relief. It feels dramatically so enormous. This is like what happens in a James Benning film when a very subtle change appears and it and because your attention's been trained to look for these really minute things, because you're only inhabiting this small room, suddenly you notice this change. But the just that ambient sound going away, at least it's a reprieve, some kind of reprieve. This radical act of ethnography may seem daunting, but through its absolute specificity, universal truths about China, about family, about the act of gathering to eat a meal emerge.
It might be something she ate at your aunt's that gave her the stroke. What food at my aunt's could have given her a stroke? She probably ate too much oily food there. Zhu's camera is always placed in a slightly different part of the family's common area slash living room, and different details about the space come into focus. We are a part of the family, but apart from them. Well, I think it's interesting if, as a portrait of a migrant family, that we actually don't see any of them at work. Everything is has to be invoked through what they bring to the dinner table, and so it's almost not totally real. It's not th this outside world that all the pressures they bring into this space, of course, are almost viscerally felt. And there's all these interesting dynamics where this is a family from a rural village that has moved into Wuhan, which is the largest city in central China. Um, but as migrant workers, they do not have the rights to have social services or, or welfare of any kind. So they are especially disadvantaged where they are. When is dad coming back to Wuhan? No idea. Are you hungry? I'm going to cook. But actually, I was thinking about this film more in terms of certain structural films within the experimental film tradition where, yeah, someone like James Benning or even Hollis Frampton or can think of Chantal Ackerman this way, where there is a kind of identify easily identifiable structure. I hesitate to call it a gimmick, but that you would have, you know, 13 shots, one corresponding to a different month. It all takes place at the same kind of ritual, the, the family dinner. And that gives you some kind of constant to observe variation. Mm -hmm. And it's that focus that, again, is a kind of retraining of viewer attention that is, is powerful in those works and I think is especially powerful for documentary purposes uh, in this film. Chantal Ackerman's Letters from Home, it's a wonderful document of her relationship with her mother and for all of its rigorous formalism, it's a very emotional film. And it's also, you know, News From Home is like a wonderful document of New York at that time. And like these things that no longer exist and just things that people at that time would totally take for granted. And yet they're rendered so beautifully and they, you know, they exist forever now. This is shot on like very low grade digital, but it's still telling you that these things in this this family's life are important that's sort of like a very basic observation you could make about a film but still it it bears yeah saying. and it really it amplifies noting. these again really minute frictions between the family members so there are the explosive moments of the mother screaming about her mother-in-law being useless and annoying then there are all these like subtle ways in which people just don't even look at each other. It's agonizing. And I think the structure allows you to see that as a dramatic effect that's, that's really powerful. I do want to note one thing about the film that the very last dinner is a New Year's Eve dinner, which is 
the biggest, uh, as the filmmaker told me, the biggest celebration in the whole year. It's the closing out of the last year and this opening to a new beginning. And it usually dumplings are served, and that's why they have the fancy drink. And it's like in the film, it happens after the end title or one of the end titles reappears. And it's, it's this ambiguous coda that I really think is a, a wonderful addition to the film, that, that things are going to keep going the way they have been, uh, which is mostly painful and bitter. Um, but there are moments where they, this family can come together and enjoy each other's company. And it's important to note that Art of the Real might be your first and last chance to see something like another year, despite its compassion and complexity. Amid ever-evolving notions of distribution and exhibition, filmmakers now feel less of a burden to adhere to the limitations of linear, narrative-driven, 90-or-so-minute documentaries, which were formerly imposed by festivals, limited art house engagements, or television. And, because many of the films in Art of the Real were originally shown outside of festivals and funded by non-filmmaking bodies, they don't really bear the marks of those institutions. Even for cinephiles who are familiar with the burgeoning genre of hybrid documentary, or sexuality, or appropriation in Coachella, or, you know, Chinese migrant families, these films stand out and prove that there's still plenty to discover. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Violet Luca. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android and iOS at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.